and welcome to the JNMP podcast. With this month, we have a special issue on epilepsy. Dr. James Allabone will be joining me over Skype, and we'll be discussing structural and functional imaging and what it can tell us about the psychosis of epilepsy. Followed by Professor John Duncan, who'll be giving us an overview of his recent paper looking at the implications for driving after epilepsy surgery. James Allibone, psychologist from the School of Psychological Sciences, the University of Melbourne in Australia, is on the line to talk about the psychosis of epilepsy. So James, thanks for joining me. My pleasure, thanks for having me on. Admittedly, I was a little surprised to learn about psychosis and epilepsy. So I wondered if you could just tell me a bit more about it, sort of how it presents, sort of exactly how common it is. Yeah, sure thing. So I'll talk a little bit about psychosis first, and then maybe I can talk a bit about psychosis of epilepsy. Uh, So psychosis is an abnormal condition of the mind. Uh, It's characterized by a a sort of a difficulty distinguishing what's real from what's not real. And the main symptoms that we see in psychosis, the main positive symptoms, are delusions and hallucinations. So a delusion is a firmly held belief, and that belief is very difficult to shift, and it's not in line with reality. And these beliefs can have a significant impact on a person's functioning in their everyday life. So an example of a a delusion might be, uh, say, the belief that you're being followed by authorities and there's absolutely no evidence to support that idea. So that would be a persecutory delusion, which is, in fact, the most common form of delusion. The other main positive symptom that we see in psychosis is uh, hallucinations. So these are sensory perceptions um, in the absence of any kind of uh, sensory stimulus. So you can have these uh, experiences in any kind of modality, uh, but the most common are auditory hallucinations. So this might be hearing voices, for example, um, or visual hallucinations. So that, again, is seeing things um, that aren't actually there. Now, in epilepsy, we know that there's an elevated risk of people experiencing psychosis, so experiencing these um, hallucinations and delusions. And there's an estimated prevalence of about 55 to 6% of psychosis in people with epilepsy. So that's quite a bit higher than what we see in the general population, which is about 1% to 2% of people. Uh, and the most recent prevalence study looking at the rates of psychosis in people with epilepsy showed that it was uh, an almost eight-fold increase in risk of experiencing psychosis um, in people with epilepsy. So it's, it's obviously more common than it is in the general population. Um, your paper talks about a thing called the mesial temporal lobe hypothesis. Um, I wondered if you could just tell us a bit about that, particularly in its relation to psychosis of epilepsy. Yeah, sure. Um, so this was, this was an idea that emerged as I was going through the neuroimaging literature in psychosis of epilepsy. And what I was seeing was that early neuroimaging studies really focused on this part of the brain called the mesial temporal lobe. Um, So this is sort of the middle part of the temporal lobe of the brain. And when I was looking at why researchers were focused on this region, I found that they were informed by early prevalence studies, again, by people like Slater and Beard and Pond and Gibbs and others, um, who had found that there was a higher prevalence of psychosis in people with a particular form of epilepsy called temporal lobe epilepsy. So as the name suggests, this is a form of epilepsy where the seizures begin in the temporal lobe. Um, And this led researchers to think that, you know, maybe it's uh, pathology in that part of the brain, in the mesial temporal lobe, um, that's underpinning the the psychosis that they're seeing in these people with epilepsy. Um, So this is what 
I called the mesial temporal lobe hypothesis. And that prevalence rate has been supported by some, but not all prevalence studies um, since. Um, and it led to a focus on the mesial temporal lobe, particularly a structure, a gray matter structure in the mesial temporal lobe called the hippocampus um, in, in most neuroimaging research um, from then on. I mean, your review talks about how you think that actually psychosis of epilepsy may in fact be a network disorder rather than a sort of focal lesion within the temporal lobe, if I've understood that correctly. What, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by a network disorder? Well, look, if we look back at the history of neuroimaging research, um, early neuroimaging research focused on identifying, you know, as I said, lesions in specific regions of the brain in patients with all different types of psychopathology. And the hope was that that part of the brain could be related to the symptom, to the psychopathology itself. And then there was this, uh, these new techniques that became available like functional magnetic resonance imaging and diffusion tensor imaging. And they showed that the brain is comprised of these functionally and structurally interconnected regions in the brain, uh, which is what, what we mean by a neural network or a brain network. And we know that these networks, they support both normal psychological functioning, but also pathogenic type processes like seizures and also their comorbidities like psychosis. So what we're arguing is that in the paper is that based on the imaging um, uh, research to date in psychosis of epilepsy, it looks like the changes in the brain that underpin its pathogenesis are likely to extend beyond that mesial temporal lobe region that I was talking about and actually implicate these more widely distributed brain networks. And this is consistent with what we think, how, well, how we think epilepsy works. So epilepsy is now understood as a network disease. Um, and that's well supported by neuroimaging research, which shows structural changes in regions well beyond um, the side of the seizure focus. So for example, in temporal lobe epilepsy, we see white matter abnormalities in tracts well beyond the temporal lobe. And we see great gray matter changes well beyond um, the temporal lobe as well. And also in psychosis, there's a consistent finding in the psychosis research in neuroimaging, which strongly suggests that psychosis is a network disease. Um, and again, we see these widespread changes in gray matter in schizophrenia. And these changes in the brain appear to be related as well to the progression of the disease. So I guess in psychosis of epilepsy, we think that the mesial temporal lobe, it, it's probably involved, but the picture is likely to be much more complex and involve pathology in distributed brain networks. Which, of course, is something that's increasingly coming up in a lot of research. The idea that, you know, moving away from a lesion-based pathology and then moving into sort of neural networks as you describe them. You talk about, obviously, psychosis and epilepsy and the notion of psychosis being more common in epilepsy than it is in the general population. And, of course, another illness that suffers from psychosis, as you mentioned, is schizophrenia. Was your review able to draw sort of clear parallels between those different types? So that wasn't, I suppose that wasn't a specific focus of the review, but there was a few studies, like there were two structural neuroimaging studies which showed similar loss of grey matter in psychosis of epilepsy and in schizophrenia. So uh, they showed reduced hippocampal volumes and enlargement of the ventricles, which is indicative of brain um, matter loss. And I think there was one really early functional imaging study using SPECT um, in the late 90s, which showed hypoperfusion um, during like a cognitive task in psychosis of epilepsy relative to schizophrenia. But apart from those two or three studies, there really hasn't been uh, much, much research comparing those two different types of psychosis. 
Um, so there's not a lot of neuroimaging work in that area, and it's certainly an area that I think is um, an interesting prospect for future research. And then finally, James, I just wondered, obviously, the review has sort of concluded that it appears that psychosis and epilepsy appears to be based in neural networks and, and a more network disorder, as you've described. So what are the clinical implications for sort of reconsidering or reconceptualizing psychosis as this? Yeah, that's a really important question. Um, so if we go back to um, looking at some of the spec studies that we covered in the review, when we looked at um, patients who had psychosis of epilepsy and this particular form of psychosis of epilepsy called postictal psychosis, 100% of those patients showed what we call hyperperfusion, which is an increase in blood flow in frontal regions and in temporal regions. So this suggests that when people are experiencing a postictal psychosis, their brain is hyperperfused in frontotemporal networks. And so patients who are undergoing interictal spect monitoring, for example, who show hyperperfusion in these networks um, should be monitored for symptoms of psychosis because postictal psychosis can actually be quite subtle and patients may not uh, you know, readily self-report symptoms of psychosis, particularly if they're experiencing a paranoid delusion. So it's important that if we see that hyperperfused brain in patients with epilepsy um, during interictal spect, that we check in and monitor them and make sure that they're not experiencing a, um, a psychotic episode because postictal psychosis can actually lead to the more chronic form of psychosis of epilepsy called interictal psychosis, which is, as I said, the more chronic form. So it's important to try and catch this early on. I suppose our finding of limited support for the mesial temporal lobe hypothesis that we talked about, it suggests, I think, that practitioners should be vigilant um, for signs of psychosis in patients with all types of chronic epilepsy and not just those patients with temporal lobe epilepsy. So that's, I think, an important message for practitioners to take on as well. Absolutely. Some important yeah, take-home messages there. James, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. That's my great pleasure. Thanks a lot, Elizabeth. We now have Professor John Duncan from the Department of Clinical and Experimental Epilepsy, UCL's Institute of Neurology in London, and he's going to be giving us an overview of his recent paper published in the JNMP, looking at driving after epilepsy surgery, and crucially, what does new evidence say? John, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. If you could give us an overview of driving an epilepsy, in particular driving after epilepsy surgery, and then what your study found and what the implications are for our patients. To get this in context, the majority of people who develop epilepsy, about two-thirds, will have their seizures well-controlled with epilepsy medication, and life pretty much goes back to normal. That leaves about one-third of people who develop epilepsy in whom the medications don't control the seizures, and seizures continue to trouble people from day to day, week to week, month to month. And in the proportion of those people, perhaps about half of them, the seizures will arise from one part of the brain. So that will be termed focal epilepsy. And if that part of the brain can be well-defined with uh, brain scans, electrical recordings, it may be possible to make an operation to remove uh, that part of the brain that is causing the epilepsy and effectively cure the person uh, of the epilepsy. Epilepsy surgery has been carried out in a modest way for about 60, 70 years. First cases actually were 
this hospital, Queen Square, in the first uh, few years of the 20th century. It's really been over the last 20, 25 years that epilepsy surgery has become much more commonplace and carried out in uh, many more centers uh, around the world. And this has been primarily based on advances in brain imaging with MRI, allowing one to pick up the subtle abnormalities in the brain, maybe a small scar, a malformation, a tumor, an abnormal blood vessel that are causing the seizures. Now, if surgery is carried out for epilepsy, in general, we could say to somebody, there is about a two-thirds chance of the epilepsy going into remission. In other words, they may go at least a year or more in between seizures. If one looks at the possibility of having a complete cure, in other words, never having another seizure, even over 20 or 30 years following surgery for epilepsy, it's so about 40% of people will never have another seizure. In a further 40% of people, seizures will be much reduced. Maybe they only occur every few months or every few years which leaves about 20% of people in whom we may make an operation to remove the part of the brain that we think is causing the seizures, but the seizures continue. Now, in that case, clearly, we haven't removed the right part or we haven't removed enough of the part of the brain that's causing the seizures to affect a cure. Now, one of the reasons why I think people are often very keen for epilepsy surgery is to be able to drive because in most jurisdictions if somebody continues to have seizures they're not allowed to drive a car on the public roads because there is a concern that if they took a seizure whilst they're driving they may lose awareness and crash the vehicle and cause an accident with injury to themselves and to other people now for uh, this reason, most jurisdictions have pretty clear-cut uh, regulations regarding epilepsy and driving. In the UK, the essential criteria that's used is that to have what's called a Group 1 driving license, that's a license that one needs to drive a private motor car. It's felt reasonable for the person to have a driving license if their risk of a seizure in which they would be incapacitated is less than 20% in the next year. And the basis of that is that on average, if somebody has a private uh, driver's license, they would be behind the wheel for only a few hours out of the week. And the perceived risk then of them having a seizure whilst driving, causing an accident, is low enough to make that risk uh, acceptable. Now, the relevance of the study we did just recently, looking at the outcomes of people who had epilepsy surgery at our hospital at Queen's Square, London, since 1990, is that there's a proportion of people, probably about 10, 12% of the totality of individuals who have surgery, who don't after the surgery they don't have any more seizures where they lose awareness or are out of contact with their surroundings but they just have what might be termed as the warnings or the aura that always used to occur uh, before their seizures 
And that might be an experience like, say, a feeling of deja vu, a feeling of familiarity, a rising feeling in the abdomen coming up into the chest, or a feeling of fear, or a feeling of language uh, being difficult. In essence, we think those are just the beginnings of seizures in the network in the brain, but which is not developing. And up to now, and the, the law at this time is the case that if somebody has had epilepsy surgery and they have had such auras or warnings in the past as the prelude to seizures where they lose awareness, that if those auras continue to occur after surgery, they are not allowed to have a driving license as it's perceived that the epilepsy is still active. So we have fought, we follow up patients now over a thousand patients who've had surgery at the hospital and with annual follow-up so we know who continues to have auras and we know who and what what year following surgery may they have any seizures where they essentially lose awareness. So the, the, the critical assessment here was that if somebody has been entirely seizure-free for one year following epilepsy surgery, their risk of a seizure where they would lose awareness and hence be at risk if they were driving was 4.9%, so less than the 20% threshold. If they had had no seizures at all for three years, that risk goes down further to 2.4%, again, well within the threshold. And we found out that if people had auras after surgery, if that had happened for one year, their risk of a seizure where they lost awareness was higher. It was 11.3%, but that's still below the 20% threshold that would be allowed to drive with a private license in the UK. And if somebody had had auras only and that pattern was established for three years, that risk of a seizure in the following year of a seizure where they may lose awareness and not be able to safely control a car would be down to 7.8%. So the conclusion from this was that by following up uh, these patients over many years, that if individuals continued to have auras after, the, after surgery for the epilepsy, but didn't have any seizures where they were losing awareness that would of course rule driving out, their risk of a seizure where they would lose awareness would be less than 20% in the next year, which is the criteria for allowing driving. Now we've presented this data to the DVLA, the Driving Vehicle Licensing Authority in the UK, to say, well, this data being as it is, does this argue for a liberalization of the driving regulations to allow these people to drive? Yeah, and that's under consideration at the present time. One slight complication for the UK is that, as you will know, at the present time, we're part of the European Union, and that's going to change in the next year. Um, but at the present time, we're part of the European Union, and European countries, or so 28 European states, harmonized their driving regulations with regard to epilepsy in recent years. So any change in the legislation would have to be done on a Europe-wide basis. Now, at the moment, uh, you will understand that all uh, lawyers in the European Union and, then, and in the UK 
are rather preoccupied with us um, leaving the European Union. And I think I can't see it's likely this is going to get much airtime over over the next year. But I think it's something that the DVLA will certainly is minded to go into uh, when time permits. John, thank you so much for your time and for speaking to me about your work that's been recently published in the JNMP, which you can, of course, read for free. You just have to go onto jnmp.bmj.com to download the paper or listen to the podcast. So thank you very much, John. Thank you.